listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. I'm your host, Julie hawkeiser Ilkovich, And today I'm talking to Rachel Dry, who's the Deputy Politics Editor for Enterprise at the New York Times and is here to talk to us about herself and the election and the world. And we're so thrilled that you could be here. Rachel, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very Thank thrilled you. to be here. Thank you for joining us. We're so excited to chat. We are doing this fairly early in the morning, and I think we're both having our coffee. We always start this show talking about coffee and talking about our coffee drinks of choice. So what is your coffee drink of choice? My real coffee drink of choice would be paying $5 for a matcha latte and then walking with it while getting to talk with a friend like you uh, in, a, in an alternate life when that was a thing that could easily happen as a, week, a way to start a weekday morning. Um, but right now, you know, making drip coffee myself and it's the best way to ensure that there's a large enough quantity to get through the entire day. So just a very sophisticated choice for my sophisticated palate at the moment. Are you finding, like I actually this week decided to cut back on my coffee because I found progressively since March, I've been drink, I mean, drinking more and more. Do you, did you finish that pot of coffee by the end of the day? I mean, finish, like um, ask yourself every question about every decision you've ever made at 4 p.m. while you're pouring out the dregs into the sink and deciding that like a fun break from your email is the rest of the dishes. Sure, like, yes, I finish it, if that's finishing. Uh, I tried doing pour over. I tried like doing pour over in the beginning. Uh, I was living with my sibling who made pour over and I was like, what an elegant solution, just one cup. And then I was like, this is not. No. <laughs> I agree that one, that being mindful of one's caffeine consumption is certainly an aspiration for 2020 like so many aspirations, not always one, one can, um, you know, meet in the way one might want. But also, if caffeine brings us joy in this, in this world, Indeed. maybe we should limit, if we should Indeed. limit ourselves. I heard this weekend, they think people are saving like an average of something like $2,000, like ha or have during the pandemic, making coffee at home, which is just a shocking, and a shocking amount of money. Um, well, I'm so thrilled to be having coffee with you. I am happy to be sharing this conversation with our audience, but also just so happy to be catching up because I, like all friends, we have gone virtual. <laughs> We've gone virtual. You've had such an incredible career in journalism. I'd love if you could walk us through your career path. What, you know, even from the decisions before college, if anything was related, college, beyond, and then what brought you to the New York Times where you are today? Great. I love all catch-up conversations with friends, starting with you had such an amazing career. That's just like how I like to pick my friendships. I'm just sick of fancy. No, that's very generous of you. Um, I was talking um, to a younger colleague at the Times uh, last week and was thinking about, um, how lucky I've been. And I think that's an important thing to acknowledge is that um, there is a lot of luck involved in carving a path. But my first real job, uh, first official job in journalism was I was a booker. I booked interview guests at All Things Considered at NPR and I had applied to be an intern there and didn't know anything about broadcast. Um, and then that job is basically 
consuming the news, thinking of ideas, thinking of who an interesting person to talk about the news would be and getting them on the phone. And so when I was 21 years old, I was endowed with the belief that anyone should get on the phone with me. Because it wasn't me, it was like Michelle Norris or Robert Siegel or Melissa Block, but I was the conduit. So I remember I was working um, during the tsunami at the end of 2004, 2005, and it was a horrific event and I was excited as sort of the wrong word, but as in any kind of journalism situation, one privilege is you can process something terrible through working. So I was at work and calling um, uh, NGO workers on their sat phones. And I remember I got through to somebody in Banda Aceh who worked for Mercy Corps and she said, I only have 20 minutes on this sat phone. And I said, great, Robert Siegel only needs five. And I remember thinking like, who am I? Like maybe she needs to call for a helicopter. But <laughs> I also knew that, you know, she was gonna broadcast this out to 10 million American listeners who were probably gonna donate, who were deeply concerned about what was happening in a corner of the world where she was one of the only people who could tell them what was happening. And so I um, had from the very early age, the the experience of thinking about the news through the lens of who is the right voice on this story and through the lens of I should be able to talk to whoever I want. Um, you know, and the, the belief that I should be able to talk to whoever I want was, was something I was, was lucky to be nurtured <laughs> in a, uh, my family of talkers and as a college journalist. Um, but I do think that combination allowed me to carve a sort of non-traditional path because I um, went on to basically have a, a more than a decade's worth of editing jobs where my job was to pick the right voice to to write on a story. So I, um, from NPR, I went to work at the Washington Post um, and I worked for the Outlook section, which is the weekend commentary section. And a lot of that job was this a similar version of who is the right voice for the right moment. So. Um, who's the expert, who has a personal experience that's gonna bring a story to light and how do I help tell their story or if they're not a writer by profession um, or vocation, like how do we elevate their story? And then I, um, I had other jobs. I, I worked in the National Desk editing politics. I edited feature stories at the Style at the Washington Post. And then I came to the New York Times to do a similar job. I was an op-ed editor and then I was the editor of the Sunday Review section. But at the root of basically every job I've had is uh, <laughs> making people talk to me and thinking about what is the right question to ask and who is the right voice to get to speak on something. And that is rooted in, I think, that very first training I got as a booker. I don't think people talk a lot about booking jobs and I, I, they exist for most broadcast jobs. I think they probably exist for podcasts too. And it's just a great experience because your job is to make sure that you get the right person to talk about something and you get them to show up and you get them on a quality line. Um, and I'm yeah, grateful that was my, my entry point. Well, I love, a, I love a career journey like that where it's one, you know, a set of skills, but it kind of translates to different types of jobs. And I think that's a really interesting thing to think about for everyone to think about when they're going through their own career. Maybe your next job isn't going to be exactly like your last, but you're going to be able to use the same skills and you're fully qualified for it. Um, and now you're going to be the ones, you're the one answering the questions today, not asking right. the questions. And then <laughs> one day you'll get booked. You'll be the one being booked. 
you'll be the one being asked if you want water or tea. Your book. And tea. I didn't yeah. I didn't offer you any water yeah. or tea, unfortunately. That's okay. Um, <laughs> across across you Zoom. Me, you asked me how I like my coffee. Same thing. Yeah. <laughs> What is this job of deputy politics editor for Enterprise at the New York Times? What are you doing, especially right now? Um, I know, I, I know, I don't know how you feel. I never like the question, like, what's your typical day like? Because there's probably no typical day. But what are some of the kind of key, additional key elements of your job? So Enterprise is this newspaper word that I didn't really learn until I'd already been doing it. But basically, it comes to Stanford, the stories that we're doing because we think they're important, not necessarily the stories that are the obvious news developments of the day that, you know, most news organizations want to cover with speed and accuracy and breadth and analysis. But, you know, if the president does something in a given day or Congress does something, it's usually not a question mark should that be a story? If 2020 is a terrible year, for example, um, this is a story I just was thinking about uh, tweeting out recently, we published it over the summer, but um, it's a story about this guy who coined the term millennial back in the 90s. And in the book where he did that, he, in 1991, he predicted the crisis of 2020. It's very eerie. So that is not news. Like, what did one man think in 1991 might happen in 2020 is not the same as here's what Congress did in 2020. But it's an enterprise story um, that we thought of, that we chose to do, that we hope um, provides some context to think about the world as it's unfolding. So a lot of the stories about the campaign that I've worked on that count as enterprise are the um, sort of bio biographical chapters of the candidates so explaining, um, you know, points in their life that help you understand what kind of a decision maker or leader they might be. Um, there are stories about set in specific places where people are thinking about, you know, their lives and how they might make choices coming up in the election. So there, the goal is, I mean, the goal is to produce interesting things to read um, and to just produce a way to think about what's happening in the world that offers you um, more context than just a fire hose of, of the news events. So we, <laughs> I was talking to, I mentioned I was talking to this um, younger colleague and I, I use the phrase that I like a lot, which is conceptual scoop. And I like that a lot because that's my speed. Like there are a lot of my colleagues, God bless them. It's important to have people who, who like desperately want the scoop. They're so hungry for the scoops. Who doesn't love a scoop, I guess. I, I'm very proud when the paper place I work has a scoop. But for me personally, what I want is the idea that no one else had or the approach that no one else took. And that I would call that a conceptual scoop. And that's what enterprises. I'm learning so much about this today. It's <laughs> a very generous, learning so much is a very generous way of saying that was a long answer. No. Uh, okay. <laughs> what an interesting I monologue. <laughs> yeah. I, did, <laughs> yeah. I did not know actually about enterprise and I've been working in the, or that term actually. So I, I well, really, I don't know. Don't you feel like sometimes, sometimes I do feel like journalism, journalists come up with jargon because we are like decoding other people's jargon all day so then we're like we also should have some it should like there's it should be opaque something should be opaque but 
anyway, that's how I understand Enterprise. We need our own code. <laughs> yeah. As we were planning for this episode, um, there were so many reasons that we wanted you to be on the show. Um, two specific ones were, one, we're celebrating 100 years of women having the right to vote this year, which is amazing and exciting. And we're coming up on a very important election. How has it felt to be working in this space in the middle of both a global pandemic, the election, murder hornets, I don't know, everything that's happening in the world at this time. So I'm glad you brought up murder hornets because I feel like people have really forgotten just the political implications of <laughs> murder hornets story. Um, I appreciate the question. And I, I will say that my thinking has changed a lot over uh, been doing this job since um, June of 2019. And I decided to take it in part because I was looking around at the primary field and I thought, look at all these women running for president, I want to help shape the coverage um, of how we talk about their policies, their races, how they're reaching voters, and their lives. Um, and obviously now we have a general election between two 70-something um, white men. Uh, and it's been very interesting to watch the evolution of the resistance energy that fueled the women's march that that was a pretty a mass protest movement um largely driven by women obviously it encompassed a lot of people um to watch that on the democratic side really funnel into a question of electability and um answering that question ultimately with nominating joe biden so i started to think about <laughs> well, how do we talk about this? How do we talk about um, gender and politics and public life? And, um, you know, there are a lot of stories that I, a year ago I would think of as women or gender stories, stories about gender and how it interacts with politics and life. And I would sometimes, face resistance is not what I want to say, but there's a certain situation and, and maybe some of your listeners can relate to, maybe you can too, where um, when you start talking about women, it feels like you're talking about a special category of people, like men are people and women are women. Um, and in fact, women are the majority of American voters the election will be decided by women because women are the majority of American voters and specifically in um, key battleground states will, will be the decisive factor. And so it started to feel important to remind people of that fact. And in 2016, um, a lot of people got things wrong or, or obviously didn't quite see what was going to happen. And what was pretty surprising to a lot of analysts was that um, uh, Republican women the majority of white women voters voted for Donald Trump. And there was a feeling that, you know, how could women vote for this man after the Access Hollywood tape came out? And the truth is that gender identity is not a, a identity that blocks out every other thing in a person's, um, you know, or set of organizing principles and beliefs. And when you think about women as a special category, then you're more tempted to think about it as a part of your identity that subsumes everything else. And we're in a really interesting moment now. I, I'm not sure when this will air, but as we're talking, um, you know, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died a few days ago. There's a heated political battle about what will happen um, in terms of replacing her, but 
President Trump has pledged to name a woman to the seat and um, uh, Joe Biden has pledged if elected that his uh, first court nominee would be a woman. I think he specifically said a black woman. And so we're in a situation where people are talking about naming a woman, women who have, you know, would have dramatically different uh, sets of beliefs because we're talking about a conservative jurist and presumably a liberal jurist if, if under a, a Biden pick. But that their unifying identity as a woman is something that is going to mean something to women voters, presumably. You know, it's, it's a symbolic move generally thought to appeal to women. And there's just a lot of um, assumptions about what women think about women in public life, what men think about women in public life, what young voters think about representation when it comes to gender. Um, that I felt like we really were, came up short on in 2016, and it's been really interesting to explore. It's interesting to explore in the midterms where women did win a historic number of seats. Um, and it's been interesting to hear people talk about now. It, um, you know, in the primary, there are a lot of a lot of women saying to our reporters, "I just don't think this country will vote for a woman." And so, what does that mean? now and what does that mean in terms of what those people think will happen for the next generation these are um these are questions that a lot of people said i can't really get into because of you know these are democratic primary voters because of the emergency of donald trump but um what the quote-unquote emergency of donald trump if that's how you see it reveals about gender and possibility in society is really interesting. If you think about the conventions that we had last month, you know, there were a lot of Republican women, women in the Trump administration who got on the weirdly empty stage at the Mellon Center in DC um, <laughs> and said, uh, you know, Donald Trump can't be sexist. He promoted me, a mom. And um, which challenges, you know, what has been in recent decades a pretty super superficial understanding of gender, which is that representation is the end. And it doesn't matter what we're talking about in terms of support for paid parental leave, support for health care, um, for equal pay protection, uh, support for pursuing harassment claims on campuses. There, um, there is a certain level of superficial parity that um, we're in a moment of really exploring and that I think is ultimately very interesting in an election year where, yeah, it's 2020, um, the Women's March existed, the 2018 pink wave for better or worse existed. And um, I remember the, the lead of a story that my colleague Lisa Lair wrote um, on the day uh, Elizabeth Warren dropped out was the, I'm gonna mess it up a little bit, but <laughs> we can link to it is, you know, the pink tide washed ashore two white men. And it's been a really fascinating to think about why that is and how this particular moment that it's a real inflection point for a lot of women who in the pandemic have seen caregiving responsibilities fall disproportionately on them while, you know, they still have the same professional responsibilities. Um, and how is that shaping how they're thinking about politics? All swirling around us, and it's not going to end. Those questions are not going to end 
in November, but it's certainly part of what makes gender and thinking about where women are in public life and private life in private lives that support their public lives such an interesting question. I mean, this is uh, this is amazing, and and we've been having this conversation also on this podcast the last few episodes in terms of all different types of diversity, and I mean like you're saying, and we, and kind of always the message is the same, like, it's not enough to just, what do you say, talk the talk, like, you have to walk the walk. It's not enough to just say, like, okay, we hired those women, or we hired those Black people, and we're moving on. I mean, there, it, it's so vital to go beyond that. I, as you're speaking, I'm like, so much has changed. We just don't know, but so much has changed in the last six months, even in terms of individual women, like their, I mean, their entire lives, like childcare and their careers. And as we are hearing so many women, they think and already are, are going to have to give up their careers because of what's happening with COVID and the economy. And how can that not influence the election? But I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, whatever happens, I do, it does seem as though we are at a different level of awareness about how mm-hmm. responsible is spread and, um, you know, the perceptions or preconceptions that people have about what a leader is. I mean, this was in 2018, more candidates did ads about being moms than ever before. And, and some of them were successful and some of them weren't. You know, there's a candidate, I think, in Wisconsin who hadn't, was breastfeeding in an ad. I do not think it was a successful campaign, but that was a new thing. There was a congressional candidate in Virginia this year in the cycle who had an ad talking very directly about an um, an experience of assaults, and uh, the we are in a moment where our, it seems as though politics are coming to more fully encompass the totality of people's lived experiences, and it's colliding with this pandemic moment where you can't escape the totality of your lived experience because there's no like place to go (laughs) where your life doesn't exist. And um, I have to believe that will have an enduring effect on who thinks about political engagement. And certainly there, I think younger politically engaged people have different attitudes than we might. And we're, I don't, sorry to blow up our spot where I would say old millennials, (laughs) where we're like, we're like on the the, t- the top tier of like every millennial age grant. I don't, I have a mixed, uh, a conflicted relationship by identifying with millennial, um, mostly because I'm just like actively terrible, age inappropriately bad at social media um, and like many other things, but we're also not young voters. You know, this is the first election where millennials are not actually the youngest voters. Um, in fact, the youngest voters probably think of millennials as uh, old and out of touch. I do keep trying to assign a story like who's a Gen Z whisperer and like finally for like you have to stop talking about Gen Z whisperers like you sound even much older than you think. What's a Gen um, Z whisperer? Like who who's who's influencing Gen Z? Yeah like I want no I want basically in my imagination there is somebody who's like selling themselves as the Gen Z consultant who's like, I will help you get Gen Z on your side. Whether this person exists or not, I have not determined. So that is one addendum to the enterprise uh, description. Sometimes it's an idea that you assign someone to report and they come back and they're like, by the way, 
it doesn't exist. <laughs> That's not an idea. <laughs> yeah. And then you have to say, oh, well, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah. Very energized by young voters. And I will say, and I won't get into it now because we have so much to talk about, but tick I got into TikTok over the, like, over the past couple of months. And it's opened my eyes to, I mean, I'm not saying there's only young people on there. I know it's such a giant, giant, giant social network, but it's opened my eyes and to just, you know, being able to see young people who are energized in ways that we're not even thinking about and who don't even think like us. Like they don't, they're not closed-minded. They're so open-minded. They don't see differences between people and they're really just working towards the greater good. And it's inspired me. So not to, I mean, there's a whole other issues with TikTok. I know this is, this is a podcast, so it doesn't help that I'm just nodding along, but, um, I do just need to say that there's nothing I could say about TikTok that wouldn't be like truly humiliating for me to listen back to because yeah, that's where I'm going to leave it. (laughs) Well, TikTok's a whole other, a whole other issue at a, at recording time, but so being in the middle of this all, and I'm going a little off book because I didn't, I didn't send this as a question in, uh, to, to tell everyone how this gets made there. You know, we, we, we have questions that, uh, we send ahead, but I didn't send this as a question, but yeah, they can, they can definitely tell that I've prepped these answers. I think from these answers, from these rambling answers with some tangential relationship with the question, everyone knows this was like really, I love them. I love it. Very, very rehearsed. We've been practicing all morning. How do you not go crazy being in the middle of this. What do you do to shut down? I mean, so many of us are, I don't work in the middle of politics 24 seven or a news organization. And I still have moments where I feel like I'm drowning in information. Can you let yourself have some balance? I'm extremely flattered by the premise of the question, which is that I am holding it together. (laughs) Um, It seemed great. I'm very, um, I will say, I mean, I alluded to this a little bit, uh, and I do think about this when I think about, you know, working during a tsunami, but, um, take this past weekend, for example, Justice Ginsburg died. I, you know, I'm in a different role than I have been at, you know, past moments where, you know, even a Supreme Court justice has died and it would have been my job to scramble to get somebody in 20 minutes to write a beautiful recollection of their life. But, um, you know, there is something, I'm extremely privileged to have a job where I can take in a lot of information about the volatile news moment we're living through. It's my job to do something about it. I mean, not not do something in, you know, take up a cause on either side, that's very much not my role, but I can think about what I'm curious about, what I'm scared about, what I'm wondering about, and I can marshal the resources of my extremely talented colleagues and bring those to bear on um, the story. So that can go both ways, right? Because then everything is work. So (laughs) there's like, if, you know, if you're always thinking about what a story is, then you know, um, listening to someone, you know, talk about their dog, I can think like, have we done enough about Joe Biden's dogs? Um, probably we have, <laughs> but like, like the, the pandemic puppy trend, what does it mean for dog voters and Joe Biden? But, um, so that's where it can go awry, but really, you know, I'm, I'm programmed to want to take in a lot of information and, 
I'm lucky that if and when it gets overwhelming, um, it is my job to think about what's overwhelming to me. Is that likely to be overwhelming to other people? How can I think about what story might get at what's overwhelming and what might answer a question to us or who's a character I'm curious about, whose life experience um, do I feel worried about or like I don't have access to alone in my quarantine part of the internet and what do I want to know about how they're thinking. So, so that's one thing is that my, my job is to take overload and anxiety and process it in a way that feels productive and that's very lucky. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, can I tell you a story about doing yoga? No, because I haven't done it in a month and a half. I do, I will say, um, this isn't a very lucky thing. I grew up in Vermont and I am in Vermont now, which has been a really lucky, funny bonus time to spend with my family and a, a lucky time to be here, um, thanks to the magic of working remotely. Uh, and there's a woman I grew up with, we went to elementary school together, who is a meditation teacher and she does sound baths. Um, and there's a sort of local discussion mailing list and I saw her name pop up and this is a woman, you know, we were in fourth grade together. And so now every week I can go to an outside meditation class and it, it just so happens that we meet at the sort of rec park fields next to our old elementary school um which is really you couldn't if you, like in the sort of return to hometown story it was a little on the nose to be like <laughs> meeting on we went to mary hogan elementary school meeting on mary hogan drive to do sound baths uh, it certainly is not what I, and we're, we're meeting near where we used to, where we used to like have to run the mile in gym class and she's a very good athlete. And so she would like run four loops of the, and I would um, slow walk three and then pretend to be done like after she passed me. Anyway, some number of years later, you can do the math because I already said I'm an old millennial. Here we are back in a pandemic and I'm able to do a physical activity that's more my speed, which is breathing. <laughs> which is lying down and breathing. Um, so that has been a good part of it too, which is a long way of saying, if you don't have access to um, your fourth grade acquaintances, a meditation practice, um, a way to really fully unplug so that there's no way for a device to be in front of you has been helpful to me. That's, I think that's great. That's kind of like the only the only way right now. I mean, we're in our homes. We're like around work all the time. There's no, yeah. What is balance? We'll have to do a whole episode about that. Cause what the hell does that mean now? I mean, <laughs> you don't even get to leave it behind. You know, right. And I'm very lucky, you know, I don't have kids and I know that friends with young kids have a struggle that I really cannot imagine when you're trying to balance all of this plus childcare. So, so that is, um, I do want to acknowledge that privilege that the main person I'm trying to like keep alive and, and sane is myself. <laughs> but yeah, sound bath or anything where the like peer pressure to not be looking at a device, I think is like the closest I can get to balance. And did I think that I'd ever be talking about sound baths in a public forum like this? No. Do I recommend them? Yes. Can you give us like an uh, elevator pitch? What's the 20 seconds on what a sound bath is? It's essentially, um, sound and vibration 
in concert with a guided meditation. So it's um, basically guided meditation with instruments. That sounds lovely. I'm that. sure there are people, I'm sure there are people who know actual information are like every part of that was wrong. Like, <laughs> get this <laughs> one. Yeah, yeah. It sounds lovely though. I, I want to be a part of that. What advice would you have for women who want to learn more about politics? If there's anything like beyond just reading the news, re reading Twitter, yeah. or maybe those are the best ways, like, you know, and maybe maybe it's for women who want to learn about what's happening, but also as we discussed, like a lot of women want to learn how to run for office and want, um, and we want to encourage people, more women to run for office. So what advice would you have for people, uh, women specifically wanting to learn more right now? That's a good question. And I think the blanket statement I want to give is it goes back a little bit to, I was joking about jargon and politics is a world where it's pretty accessible to actually find out what matters and there's a level of people who feel important trying to make it seem inaccessible so there's a lot of commentary and conversation that treats it like sports that projects a sort of manufactured sense of expertise that can make real understanding feel out of reach and I don't want to speak in gendered terms but I will allow you to <laughs> to BYO gendered terms to um, what I'm talking about and I do so I lived in Washington DC for 11 years I normally live in New York now and I spent my 20s in Washington going to, like occasionally going to parties when I was invited, um, where there are a lot of very ambitious people who worked in journalism and politics who um, would often speak about things they didn't fully know about or had just read about the day before. And they spoke with extreme confidence while drinking cheap beer in a backyard of a group house. And I think about that a lot because I once, told somebody who's a very famous journalist that I had um, just edited a story about something like I was really up to speed on this topic and he um, said back to me something that was totally wrong about it and I tried to correct him and he didn't want to listen and I think about that a lot because I'm still mad about it no I think about it because they're you know, as in anything, people want to prove their value. And there's a lot of political discussion that can be off-putting because it's people for sport trying to show that they know more than you do. So for people try engaging with political news and commentary, maybe for the first time, or it's not your top thing that you're always following, I hope the work that we're putting out into the world uh, is helpful to you and doesn't feel inaccessible. But the, my main blanket statement is you are going to get it. Like there, there are a lot of people who, who do have real expertise. I'm not denigrating expertise. I need to be clear about that. But I think there is a lot of commentary that is, can feel like it's speaking to an echo chamber and can be really off-putting. So my blanket statement is it's not you. Like there are things that are intended to obfuscate and find other things. Where to look for those other things I would hope the New York Times. Um, but I also think, you know, there are a lot of people doing a lot of interesting work around specific issues. So a good friend of mine runs um, Chalkbeat, which is a nonprofit news organization covering education. And so if you're dealing with very convoluted back to school for your kids and you think like, how is this possible that this is what public policy is? Um, 
one way to really engage with politics is to engage on a level where it touches your life. And so to maybe read up about what's happening in the school board or superintendent where you live. So I would, so that's, that is Chalkbeat. That's a great resource. Um, there are a good number of sort of subject matter oriented nonprofit news organizations that I think can be great ways in. Um, you know, I, I sound like I, I was really down on commentary. You know, I edited opinion and political opinion for a long time. And I think it's very important to have that. And it's very important to be able to read people who are on your wavelength, helping you understand things. And so I'm not putting that down. I, I think if you find someone who you generally agree with, um, it's good to follow them because they're gonna, it's like someone holding your hand. It's like being in a smart conversation with someone who's maybe inside your brain, but is articulating it a little bit, you know, with some expertise that you might not have. So I think it's, it's good to read people you agree with and it's good to read people you disagree with because you don't wanna be surprised that there are more people than you thought who disagree with you. Find something that feels accessible to you. And if it doesn't feel accessible, it's not you. It's the person who's making the work feel like there's not a good entry point. You know, we we're talking about social media earlier. I think I, I'm I'm a bit. I use Twitter to consume my news a lot of times. So I have created, you know, like you're saying, following the people I'm interested in. But one issue I found, especially with Twitter, is the as the algorithm learns, you only get one side of things. You you tend to only get one side of things, right? So I think now, especially with everything happening in the world, like it is important to learn about different opinions or different you know news stories even if they're not necessarily what you agree with so i do think it's it's a little bit more it's a little bit more work um but so vital i mean in this environment i don't think any of us can afford to just be like i i, can't, I don't have time for that <laughs> so yeah um, no it's yeah. hard i want to i will make one addition because i um you know there are some people who would say i i don't want to i i understand the value of you know, you should know what other people think, but I don't want to engage with people who sort of don't seem to believe that in my fundamental rights. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. And I, I come to a position of believing that there's value in reading a wide range of opinions from a position of privilege. I'm a straight white woman who's employed, um, who, and I think in this moment, there can be some arguments that some people might think are, you know, intellectually daring and that's the main stakes. And other people might think like, this makes me feel unsafe. And I, I don't think, um, you know, genuine political engagement means you have to necessarily give space in your brain to people who really make you feel terrible. Um, and I think this is a real, challenge of this moment we're living in is how do we understand the full spectrum of what people are thinking, people who are going to vote, who are going to make decisions that affect everyone's lives, when some of what those people are thinking can feel very challenging and threatening to a lot of other people. And that's part of journalism's job is to present a broad spectrum of opinions in ways that don't seem to be needlessly amplifying violence or, or danger or false information on the one hand. On the other hand, making sure people are not surprised by what their fellow Americans are thinking or doing because being surprised um, and having real blind spots and understanding where other people are coming from 
is certainly what happened in 2016. It's, um, you could argue the roots of it were a long time coming. And that I think is, that's the goal of our work is to, is to be thoughtful about making sure people aren't surprised. Um, and that I hope is the goal of, you know, when you're cultivating your own reading news diet to, to make sure that there's not a whole swath of humanity that you just don't have access to like you just don't understand because then it does increase the likelihood that you're going to be unpleasantly surprised by something because you didn't see it coming yeah but people who have jobs that are totally disconnected from the media how do you um consume information that is enough information subscribe to the new york times on politics newsletter written by lisa lair she's a true delightful colleague and, and does a great job um but i do think you know finding a newsletter from a person you trust and like um is a good way in this moment to at least get a dose of what you need that's great i think it's great advice this is an amazing conversation before i let you get back to your busy life we're going to get to our lightning round Great. Um, we're just going to ask you some quick questions before we wrap, but before we move on to that, I just want to say thank you so much for your like incredibly thoughtful insights on what's happening in the world right now, especially as it pertains to women. I mean, this is a conversation we have to be having and, um, I, I, I know we talked about it even before we started recording, but you said it here too, not being shocked at whatever happens, you know, I think it's really, <laughs> that really is a lesson I'm taking away from it. It's like informing myself yeah. to understand. So it's not like, oh my gosh, I never heard anyone even talking about their support for this person and they won. Um, so I think that's something we can all take on. Of course, I'll say it again at the end of the podcast, but what can we all do? We can vote. Um, so register to vote if you're not. Go to vote.org to learn if you're registered, where you can vote. Um, and now I'll have a little bit of fun with our lightning round. So what is the best job you've ever had? Being a booker at All Things Considered was a very fun job. I will say that. I also taught theater day camp in college. Um, I wrote a play and made children perform it that was a dramatized version of when Jim Jeffords switched parties. He was a Republican senator. It, it doesn't, it, like, when I started doing politics, someone asked, like, oh, have you always been interested in politics? And I thought, no, not really. It just the job came along. And then I remembered that I made eight-year-olds reenact, like, a parable about partisanship. It was sort of about reality TV and like the gym class was fighting the art class. It was a subtle, subtle take on partisanship. Um, that was a very fun job too, hanging out with eight-year-olds and playing theater games um, and making them do this play. I don't think there's a re existing recording of it, unfortunately, but oh man, um, that was a fun job too. Um, who is an extremely memorable person that you met when you were working at All Things Considered? One of the first stories I got on the air that was my idea was a paprika shortage in Hungary. There had been some mold found in the paprika and the whole country was in a paprika outage basically. And I piped up in the meeting, we should interview a Hungarian chef about how you make chicken paprikash without paprika. And um, my colleague said, all right, like if you can find a Hungarian chef who speaks good English, great. Um, and I did. 
<laughs> so that was a memorable. Uh, was the answer interesting? Ultimately, I do not remember. I think I think when you are having like a mold outbreak in your pap paprika stash, you just don't make chicken paprika. I was that's, gonna ask that. I'm like, that's I, the I, answer. Yes. Yeah. You make chicken paprika without paprika? I think no. No is the answer. <laughs> but I do remember finding that chef and being pretty pleased with myself that I did. <laughs> journey. It was a journey to get there. Would a better answer have been a celebrity or an inspiring like historical figure? Perhaps. Absolutely but not. No, absolutely that's, not. That's what we're going with. What's the, well, have you ever had a truly bad job? What's the worst job you've ever had? I have been extremely lucky in my work. I remember my first summer I had an, I was interning at a magazine, um, and I was sitting very close to, uh, people making calls to just check phone numbers. And I was sort of burnt out. And I remember thinking like, I just want the job where you're just making phone calls to check phone numbers. And I had the nerve to say that to my roommate that night. And he looked at me like, give me a break. Like your, your job is, <laughs> your job is doing journalism, which people would kill to do, which you're very lucky to be doing. So um, yeah, I do. <laughs> I, I had to um, process freelance payments once when I was an editorial assistant Whew, for not years. And I just wasn't great at it. I was not great at keeping the books. I, and I just felt very badly for people whose checks were dependent on me. Uh, understanding Maybe that's myself. the worst job they yeah. ever had. That, was, that might have happened. Yeah. There, that was the worst job. Uh, yeah, that was connected to me. Like the worst job other people had was waiting for me to figure out the paper. Was not getting paid. Oh my god. Yeah. Everyone got up. paid. It, it feels very <laughs> important to say that everyone got paid. Everybody got paid. Maybe not an organized matter, but it happened. It happened. Correct. Correct. What What's the best piece of career advice you've ever gotten? It's a two part answer, and the first is. To, to try and demystify what you're curious about, to try and get in the room and to understand what the actual day-to-day -day would be. Because I think there are a lot of very interesting roles or interesting ways to be involved in fields that if you have zero access, if no one in your family, your educational circle, your social circle has ever talked about this job, then you have no idea what it is. And so if you're even a little bit curious, figure out how to knock on the door and get in a room, even sitting in on one meeting. I remember I was very lucky. I interned at Time Magazine. And from the first day I sat in an editorial meeting, I knew I wanted to be in a meeting where people are talking about stories and ideas. And I sort of oriented myself at that. That was an extremely lucky thing. But I do think if you can get as close to a room or a day or a person who can tell you what the actual job is like that you're curious about as a way to answer the curiosity for yourself, that is one good thing to do. Um, the other thing is, this was advice I got from um, the editor of the Washington Post when I was thinking about leaving. So he had no incentive to give me this advice, but he said, make sure you're always going towards something you proactively want to be doing and not towards something that's new. 
which I think is hard because the appeal of novelty, if you're lucky enough to have a new opportunity in front of you at a moment when novelty is speaking to you, it can be very hard to weigh in your mind, do I proactively want to do this or do I like the idea of something new? Um, so to make sure that you are going towards something, if you have the you know privilege to be able to pick and not just doing something new. I also have called a psychic <laughs> at the, la the last couple of important um, career decisions I had to make. It's not a thing I normally would do. I am a stand-up comedian um, outside of my work life and a friend of mine from comedy had been talking about psychics a lot on stage and I thought, oh, she'll have a recommendation for one. Um, so I, I do not recommend calling a psychic, but <laughs> this goes to making decisions. She told me something about what I should do and I realized it's what I wanted to hear. Where I'm gonna land this advice, I'm curious why I started telling this story now, but, but what I- <laughs> For my pure joy <laughs> the entertainment. Round. The lightning round. Uh, yeah, the lightning round. Um, it was like a very expensive uh, way to flip a coin, but if something is calling to you, you're probably not wrong that you want to be doing it. I think the, um, the advice that your editor or the editor of the Washington Post gave you is like some of the best advice I've ever, yeah. I mean, I've ever heard. He's That's smart, incredible. He, he's, a, he's a smart guy. It's Marty Barron. He's a smart guy. Yeah. Marty, thank you. I yeah. mean, especially yeah. like for me, especially in our industry where things are changing so rapidly and I see this happen all the time. There's a lot of like shiny new opportunities that I mean constantly, especially people who were working at magazines before as that industry changes, they're going to be is, and like you often know it's not right from the beginning right. based on what you, you know what you want, even if you can't be, you know, a magazine editor anymore. So I think that's like such, so vital. <laughs> you heard it here from Marty and Rachel. So vital for us to think about like, you know, is it just new shiny object or is it what I really want to be doing? And I know it's hard now also, you know, the way the world looking for new opportunities is much more challenging, but I still think that you can, you should find value in what you're doing, even if it's not yeah. exactly right. It's, you know, it's what you're doing every day. So Indeed. I love that advice. I love it. Rachel, you're, this is amazing conversation. You're a gem. I've learned, as I said, I've learned so much from this. Um, and I get to talk to you all the time. And I'm still learning from you. Very um, generous. <laughs> I don't get to you, talk to you enough, though. I know. So we have, I we was have very, to get a podcast <laughs> to chat. Very thrilled to be invited. Um, I feel very warmly toward NYWiki because um, I performed comedy, God, five years ago now, five summers ago. Um, at your benefit and it was uh, I performed with women who have gone on to become huge comedy stars um, and I have taken a different path <laughs> but um, it was the best crowd um, a very warm and loving wiki crowd of women very discerning women who got the joke so um, <laughs> I, lo I love your organization for many reasons including comedy night 2015 yeah ladies who laugh you were on stage and and we didn't even get into you i mean we mentioned it but you were also stand-up comic and so in we're talking about balance i mean obviously the world's very different right now hopefully we'll go back to live comedy very um soon but what i've always really admired about you is you have this incredibly busy 
career, um, impressive and also very busy, but you, and this is what so many of us thrive to do, you also make time for things that you like and are also good at. Um, and that's very inspirational. That'll be a whole other podcast episode about. Great. <laughs> we'll have Psychics. it back. Great. Psychics, Psychics and stand-up comedy. Can't wait. <laughs> Thank you. And so I know you're not really a social media person, but is there anywhere that you, we can find you on social media? Can our listeners follow you on Twitter? Yes. Um, if you would like to follow my extremely irregular and unimpressive Twitter feed, it's Rachel underscore dry. That's it. D-R-Y. D-R-Y. Um, yeah. I'm trying to um, put out more of the stories that I've worked on that I'm proud of because I know because it's for, for sort of a scrapbook purpose and just maybe it'll help them find a wider, wider audience but that's a place to find me um and you know reading the new york times as behind the scenes i'm behind the scenes um you can't find my name which is a thing people ask sometimes where can i find your name like it's in the ether but we know you uh, read you've edited those articles the, you touched them the, the puppet master's privilege here. Um, but uh, anyway, thank you very much for having me. This was a real pleasure. So Rachel, thank you so much for being here. As I said before, one thing that our listeners should be doing is registering to vote. Please vote this year. Election day is November 3rd. And if you want more information about this podcast, you can follow New York Women in Communications on Twitter at N-Y-W-I-C-I. And we always post about our new episodes there. You can also find all our episodes at nywici.org slash podcast, nywiki.org slash podcast. Um, and you can find new episodes there as well. So thank you so much to Rachel and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. I'm your host, Julie hockheiser Ilkovich. Thank you to the amazing team that works on this podcast. Chelsea Orcutt, Elizabeth Roberts, Chrisanne Grizet, Mandy Carr, and Alex Fetter, who wrote our original theme music. And thank you to the team at New York Wiki who supports us, including, but not limited to, everyone at Kellen, Deidre Wyeth, and June Price, who designed the show's logo and does all of our graphics. <laughs>